Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're down to the final two days of the state legislative session, which, of course, was delayed by the pandemic. So they're finishing up uh, in late June rather than uh, their typical uh, departure from the Capitol, which comes usually sometime late uh, April. Every now and then they pull their hair out, go all the way into May, but not very often. But now we're down to it. We still have some crucial issues that we're going to want to talk about on the show today with our panel. First of all, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me as he does every Thursday. Hi, Kevin. How are you? It's good to be here, Bill. And I know we're not going to get to this, but in the at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we were thrilled to see the senior care, senior home care bill pass in, in the legislature. So um, I just wanted to mention a that. Big issue for the newspaper. Absolutely. Big issue for the newspaper. Yeah, congratulations on that. Uh, what, what, as long as we're talking, let's promote something, Kevin. The other day, you and I had a really interesting conversation with uh, on the media managing editor and host, uh, Brooke Gladstone, about how we in journalism today can cover the uh, White House, the political campaigns with President Trump, who often... Uh, makes things up. <laughs> How do we cover him in a balanced way? And uh, we we had a great conversation, by the way. So I wanted to tell everybody we're going to air that show next Wednesday. I'll start talking about it right now. But I was really glad you were part of that with me, Kevin. You know, I was thrilled to be part of it, Bill. And uh, as long as we're promoting things, uh, Brooke asked me to join her on the on the media show that she does each week that I think airs at noon on Sundays uh, here on GPB right. as well. Okay, congratulations. Um, Let's move on. Uh, We have two members of the state Senate who I'm really grateful are with us today because, as I said, they're going to be very busy over the next two days. Day 40 is tomorrow. Uh, Returning uh, to the show, uh, Senator Jen Jordan represents the 6th Senate District. That's parts of Fulton and Cobb County. You got your running shoes on, Jen? You uh, taking extra vitamins? vitamins? You ready for this sprint to the end? Yeah, sprint to the end and then right into a campaign. So ready to go. Yeah. Happy to be okay. here. Too. <laughs> Thank you for. Yeah. Uh, and we're joined today by uh, uh, Senator Chuck Huffsettler, who uh, represents what is it, the 53rd? Do I have that right? Uh, uh, you have Floyd County, 52nd, uh, mostly Floyd County, but a little bit of uh, Bartow. Uh, you're up there we're in Northwest Georgia. But, of, but, uh, all of Calhoun, yeah. Okay, um, but Senator, real quickly, because I know you have a shorter timetable today. The, in addition to your work in the Senate, um, you're uh, you're an anesthetist, and I just like to ask you very briefly uh, how your work has been uh, impacted by the pandemic. What have you been having to deal with up there? Well, of course, we deal with uh, critical care patients, and I'm with you know COVID patients at at times. And um, it it was scary at first, and you're always wondering, did I put my equipment on right when I'm taking it off? Am I contaminating myself? You're locked in hot, steamy rooms with patients sometimes doing procedures, and uh, it's it's gotten better. But the best thing is over the last several weeks, we've had the Abbott testing there that lets me know in a 15-minute time frame if they're positive or not. 
So it's a it's a game changer for me. Um, I still wear my protective gear, but I feel so much safer there. I actually feel safer in the hospital right now than I do at the Capitol. I bet that's true, actually, Jen Jordan. I imagine you agree with that right now, especially since Absolutely. you had to had to shelter in place for fourteen days. Yeah, so did Chuck. So um, it's, we're also, um, it's interesting. Yeah. All right. We're also joined today by uh, Republican strategist uh, Leo Smith. Leo, I sometimes hesitate to put the label Republican on your uh, 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 title because, in fact, you certainly were working with the state Republican Party. But but now you've uh, you've given that position up. You're now in, involved a lot more in what I would call nonpartisan community uh, relations work. Is that a fair way to say that? That's a fair way to say it, uh, Bill. I think as we are deconstructing uh, statues, we can also deconstruct policy interests and be about the people and not about icons like parties. Well, thank you very much for joining us as well. All right, let's get right to it. Um, I want to start with an issue. Uh, Senator Jordan, let me start with you on this. Um, the House Government Affairs Committee yesterday passed out a measure which would forbid uh, state and county election officials from sending out absentee ballot requests to all registered voters. We saw that that's what Brad Raffensperger's office did to deal with the pandemic before the June 9th primary. Uh, people will still be allowed to request absentee ballots. But if this, if this bill makes it to the floor of the House, and I don't know what the status of it is, and comes over to you, essentially it, hang, it, it says that the Secretary of State cannot, of his or her own accord, send out absentee ballot requests to everybody out there. It, it seems like a, um, a, an awfully restrictive measure, Senator Jordan, and I'm wondering what you make of it. Look, I think it's a response to the historical voter turnout that we saw. Um, and, you know, there, there's no other way to kind of interpret what's happening than, than really there are some forces um, in the Republican Party and in the House who want to suppress the vote. Um, you know, it's about as transparent as I've seen um, in terms of that. And really, if I'm the Secretary of State, I'm not happy because really the legislature is trying to, you know, yank powers away from me. And then purportedly Republicans are for local control. And then they're kind of tying the hands of locals as well, um, basically just to keep the vote down. Um, so every person should be outraged. I mean, because this, this really impacts all of us, and especially in the middle of a pandemic, when we should be really concerned about keeping people safe and keeping them away from the polls and the runoff, I mean, in the runoff and then in November. Um, this just seems incredibly um, craven and irresponsible. I, Go ahead, I, was say, I certainly don't support it, and I don't think the Secretary of State supports it, and I think he is, uh, with, with some of the actions he took, he probably upset some Republicans. He's upset some Democrats. Um, we've got new technology, which is a problem, but um, I don't see that legislation going anywhere. Um, I, I'm not a, against him making uh, every voter have access to, uh, you know, to some means to help them get their vote counted. You know, Bill, I think another thing we should mention here, too, you and I have been on the show an awful lot with an awful lot of experts on this pandemic, uh, especially Dr. Weiss of Georgia Tech, who we talked to last week. And, you know, he makes an important point that, that I think we should all remember. Nothing about the virus has changed. The only thing that has led to us 
having you know made progress, fewer deaths, how, whatever statistic you would like to point to that is progress, although some of them are, are, are not so good lately, that, that has happened because of changes in people's behavior and for no other reason. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that people will be more willing or ought to be more willing to stand in line close together or have be brisk exposure to vote come November any more than they were in this um, primary. So I just don't see any sense at all in f- trying to find a way to, to keep people from absentee voting. All right, let me frame a question for you, Leo. This measure, yes. which, again, we don't know what's going to happen to it. We don't know. It'll have to go through the Rules Committee in the House, obviously. We, I, I don't know what's going to happen to it there uh, probably, well, today or at the latest tomorrow. Tomorrow, um, but, but, Leo, this does come from a Republican majority committee at the same time that President Trump has launched a significant attack on absentee balloting, uh, saying that it's ripe with fraud and that we'll have a dishonest election if we turn to absentee ballots. So this does feel like it's part of a partisan effort to discredit absentee voting. Well, you know, I just want to, I don't think I need to state it as record, but it is record that Secretary of State Brian Raffensperger sent out 6.9 million absentee ballot applications. So if you want to know how he feels about it, I mean, I think it's better to judge what he actually did. The legislation that we in Georgia are looking at, I think, separate from anything that Donald Trump may be doing, um, in the spirit of your introduction on the early show, uh, I think that legislation is a, a look at how not, with a nonpartisan discussion, that's what Senate Bill 463 does, it presents a discussion on how to help the Secretary of State's office walk alongside with election officials who are having trouble historically, not just because of COVID-19, but historically um, giving their citizens a, a full access and an ease of access to the voting ballot. And so as I've had discussions sometimes with the Secretary of State and civil rights groups all together, and we continue to have those discussions, one of the things that we want to say when we say things like voter suppression is that wherever you feel that that is happening, and that term can, it can take a whole show to re- even discuss the definition of voter suppression now, we don't want to overlook the fact that on July 20th, we start early voting and that we have very few days to actually get what we can fix fixed. And there are many things that we can fix. And so our focus, while this discussion takes place, is to empower the local elections uh, officials and the elections and registration boards to hit the right nail and to start doing things today that will make a different experience for those people in August and in July, on July 20th, not to mention November. So the focus is there. So this cl- discussion has to happen. All right. So clearly yes, this sir. is a statement coming out of the Government Operations Committee. We'll see if, the, if they take it up in the whole House or not. But it was worth con- uh, at least a brief conversation. Senator, Huff- yes. Senator Huffstetler, I know you yeah. have to uh, leave us about midway through the show. Um, did you want to make a final comment about that? Because I want to turn it to another well, measure I, that you're involved with. I, I, don't, I don't really have any comment on that. I don't think it's going anywhere. I would like to talk about stuff, you know, that have gone places, uh, surprise killing, <laughs> hate crimes. I, and yeah. the tax credits that we're working on. Yes. Let's. You just anticipated what I wanted to talk to you about. Let's talk about tax credits. You're the uh, chair of the Senate Finance Committee. 
Um, one of the items that has been uh, discussed a great deal, especially in this year when the budget is strained so badly, is what's going to happen particularly to the uh, film and uh, TV tax credit, the tax credits that Georgia has for the entertainment industry, which have been some of the most generous in the country. Um, and I, I believe I'm correct that you're looking before any, either an expansion of the credit or a reduction of the credit, which you don't see happening this session, you want to have an audit to see just how valuable these credits really have been. Have I got that correct? Right. That was one of the recommendations is that we have a full audit, and we should have been doing it all along. So I'll be presenting a bill on the floor today that does that. Uh, the House bill that came over, actually the film company picked their auditor, uh, which isn't the way it should work. The, when I get it audited, I don't get my local CPA to do it. And so it, the DOR will pick it. Um, they'll be responsible for the cost of it, the, the entity wanting the credit. And all of these should be fully audited when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I think there's some other changes that need to be made, and, and that, that may happen next year. But we're going to certainly look at that and um, get some better accountability in on, on these dollars that are going out. And, and not just in the film industry. In a lot of areas, we're not doing the job we should of, of uh, keeping up with you know, the taxpayers' money. Uh, Senator Hofstetter, this is uh, Kevin Riley, and I know you're just joking about when you're audited. You're not being audited. I hope I hope the audience... No, I'm not being audited <laughs> right now. <laughs> okay. But, um, <laughs> but it sounds like maybe the legislature started to... just decided to step a little lightly on this film tax credit. At first, things seemed pretty gung-ho, the state's being ripped off, and and then the brakes were sort of put on it. Am I understanding that correctly? I mean, what's your take? You know, when you get right down to it, what do you think is most important to accomplish around the whole film tax credit situation? Well, I think we need to look at the out-of-state money that I don't think adds value to it. And and let me back up a little bit and say that, that Jen and I and several others, and, you know, tried to look at it in a little bit of a bipartisan manner, looked at a lot of different tax credits, this being one of them and said, we need to get some accountability. We've got another bill that simply does a 10% cut on them for this year because, you know, schools are getting cut. We cut our salary, um, child transportation, 60 vacant state trooper positions. So let's pick some priorities. And, and so that bill would just say, they're gonna share in the, in the misery too a little bit and, and uh, try to equalize it out. So that's, that's another one that's on there. Um, part of it is, you know, we we got surprise billing out. We got hate crimes out, which was important. And I told my district I was supporting it before I came down here for the second time. But they took a lot of energy. And um, sometimes the energy gets taken up on stuff and you don't get everything done you would like to get done. I would like to get more done on the film tax credits than that. But I think it's a good start, and I think we're going to be able to pull out bad actors in it. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that we – you know, tried to explore on a bipartisan basis is to go back and, you know, why did we pass this tax credit in the first place, right? Like, what was the intent of it? Um, you know, have we gotten our return on investment? And then also what's important is, you know, when these tax credits are initially, um, you know, uh, passed, uh, there is there is an estimate done, um, you know, by DOR as to how much it's going to actually cost the state. Um, and so what we haven't been doing is actually seeing, is that in line with the original intent? And is it in line with, with what we actually thought it was going to 
cost the state. Because I think what we've seen with a lot of tax credits is that they are not being used in the way um, that they were intended. And in fact, they're costing, you know, three or four times as much as, as we originally thought they would. Um, and the impact is really billions of dollars, um, you know, on state revenue. I was just going to say, we give out about nine and a half billion that- in different exemptions, and we have 14 billion we collect in income taxes. So just think of what the tax rate and the additional money could be if we just took away all the exemptions. Well, that that leads to the conversation that I think we need to have. Um, day 39 today, uh, you've got to get a budget passed uh, because, it, among other things, you're up to day 40 tomorrow, and the new fiscal year starts uh, next, I think, Wednesday. Um, so l- let's talk. Senator, you're, as I said, chair of finance, an ex-officio member of appropriations. Senator Jordan, you are on the Appropriations Committee. Um, where, Senator Jordan, what are the cuts at this point that are most trouble, or the p- proposed cuts that are most troubling to you right now? And what kind of fight is going on to assure that really crucial areas don't lose as much funding as as, poss- as they possibly could? You know, education, public health. Um, you know, mental health, the things that really uh, where we where we should be concentrating um, our money um, as opposed to pulling it out. I think one of the things that I disagreed with in terms of the budgeting process was kind of across the board cuts. Um, you know, I think we probably needed to be a little bit more nuanced with that. Um, and then, of course, yesterday there was a story in the AJC about how the cuts to the public defender's office would probably result in um, a lawsuit because it would basically render that office unable to um, provide the minimal constitutional representation that it needs to to provide. So it's that kind of stuff when you kind of go in um, with the machete and say everybody gets cut 10 percent or whatever, um, that doesn't necessarily make sense to me when, you know, maybe we should be putting more money in public health and maybe not so much money in, in other areas that don't need it right now in the middle of a pandemic. And, and if I could so add, our uh, finance committee put out a uh, tobacco tax increase, which I think is long overdue. Um, I don't see that passing the whole session. But we were – original budget had us cutting out all the cancer centers. So here's something that causes one out of every three cancer deaths that is we're, – we're spending 5 to $8 a pack subsidizing with our income taxes on the cost of the state, and it needs to go up. So in finance, my job is to bring in revenue uh, no more than needed, but that's certainly an area that I'm, I'm disappointed doesn't go forward. Um, the side benefit is that the st- statistics say from other states that 28,000 of our current youth would have a behavior change and not die an early death from tobacco. So it's not just money. Um, it's it's health care, too, and, and I just don't understand – why our state doesn't move forward in that direction. Amen. Uh, uh, before I turn, Kevin has, a, Kevin has a question. Before I give it to him, uh, Senator Huffstetler, um, the holdup, the Senate seems to be poised for, for a tobacco tax increase. Uh, Speaker Ralston has made it clear throughout the session he had no interest. He does not want to see any tax increases in an election year. He believes that a Republican obligation is to not raise taxes. Is he being short-sighted? Well, I look at it the same as transportation. We had an increase in those several years ago because we said we want the, the gasoline tax to pay for the cost of transportation. And this is the same way. 
we're we're taking hundreds of millions of dollars. The CDC says 3.18 billion as a whole of the state, and let the uh, those that choose to do this um, subsidize the cost of the additional cost that it's putting on the other 82 percent of the public. And um, I do think that you know it, it it's I'm not a tax increase guy, but I do believe that uh, these fees should be on there. Uh, so that people are paying just like on transportation, the cost of what it's it's doing to the state is taking away money from public health, from from uh, the state patrol, from behavioral health, a lot of areas, transportation for children that should be in there that we're not covering because we're taking that money and subsidizing the health care of those that made a choice to do something different. Well, I'd like to go back to Senator Jordan, uh, something she said and ask her about it. And that's the, I guess, the Department of Public Health, uh, or the, the larger issue of public health in Georgia. We've watched that department struggle uh, to provide information, track statistics throughout this pandemic. And repeatedly, we've heard that Georgia needs to invest there. And, and uh, you know, when we dig into it at the AJC, we find a system that just has all kinds of holes in it. I mean, are we? How much worse are we going to make it if the budget's cut, or or what would your suggestion be about what we do there? I mean, way worse. <laughs> I mean, I think we've already seen that for years and years, uh, public health has basically been the first place we've gone to cut every year. Um, and so then we have a pandemic, and we don't. We have a public health kind of agency system um, that really isn't prepared. Um, and you have seen the stress of that on the system. I'm just just being able to get the information in in terms of reporting and then being able to accurately report it out. We've seen that it's just been, you know, problem after problem after problem. And what it comes down to is if you cut and you cut and you cut and then there's nobody else left and there haven't been um, the investments made in public health, is that when we're faced with a, a public health emergency like that, this, I mean, there's nobody there. There's nobody there to do the job. Um, and so I think it is so wrongheaded in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I mean, we're talking about furloughing public health workers in the middle of a pandemic. If that, that, that doesn't make sense to anybody. And so that's the kind of thing we've got to, we've really got to think about as we go forward. Uh, all right, I've got to make that the last word. I know Leo Smith's eager to get in, but Chuck, Chuck Huffstetler, I have been watching the clock for you because you, we made a commitment to you that uh, you would be able to uh, take your leave uh, about midway through the show because I know you have an important meeting you want to get to. So why don't we take a break now? Senator Huffstetler, thank you for being here. Let you get to your meeting. And uh, also, thank you. I didn't get to say it earlier. I, you're, you're, um, you're up there on the front lines, and you deserve recognition for fighting the good fight against COVID-19. So thank you for being with us. Come back again soon. We'll continue with more without Senator Huffstetler after this break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We have uh, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, uh, Senator Jen Jordan, member of the Appropriations Committee, among other things. That role is particularly important as we come down to the end of the legislative session this year. Uh, and uh, Leo Smith is uh, with us as well. A conservative activist, I think is a good way to say it. And um, Leo, I know you've been eager to jump into this conversation, and I want to give you a chance uh, now as we move forward. Well, I mean, Bill, as you all know, I'm the CEO of Engage Futures Group, LLC, which has a state contract, of course, advising um, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. So I'm doing a little bit more than just activism. So I just want to make that clear. Um, no, the, you know, one of the things. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and working a lot on a lot of policy issues with legislators in Kentucky and Texas, um, as well as Georgia. So, um, you know, one of the things I just want to, you know, just say that we have to realize is going to be a casualty of uh, this COVID response. You also know that I chair the Governor's Community Outreach um, Subcommittee on the COVID-19 Task Force. We've been standing up um, testing all over the state. And one thing that we needn't um, sort of ignore is that there's been a lot of private sector response to um, implementing testing at various places, at churches, with schools, with corporate buildings that are not occupied at the time. Um, and, you know, we've got a core Sean Penn Global uh, Impact Group working in the state of Georgia. I'm working on a project with them right now. And so we're doing a lot of testing that has involved the private sector. And I say that all to say that one of the things that Jen and Senator Hostetler and others have to, to tackle is how do you get the private sector, the citizen, to get more engaged and delivering to the citizens things that we can sometimes deliver ourselves. And as we discuss budget in these, these last two days, it's really difficult because they're having to balance what can the private sector help out with that the government had already been doing. And I just want to just give a, a really a shout out to those people who take a personal commitment, even by um, voting for a 10% reduction in their own income, as, as the small income that it is, as they do the work to represent citizens of the state. So I want to thank those folks and just know that it's a, high, it's a highly nuanced matrix that they have to deal with. I'm concerned about uh, K-12 education, and I know that we've got uh, some things with House Bill 664 and, and looking for ways to increase people private response to creating public education dollars. There's a lot of things up for discussion, and I think that that's what we, we should expect um, in the next session, um, as you know, I, don't, I can't see how much more we're going to get done in these last two days. All right, Senator Jordan, I want to pick up on one aspect first about what Leo just said. Number one, you all did vote. Uh, I think, has the Senate acted as well on taking a, a pay cut for all of you in the legislature? Yeah, we did vote on that. Um, it was it was actually originally a parental leave bill um, that came out of the House. That was a really actually a really good bill, um, but uh, Chairman Mullis uh, stripped it and put uh, a pay cut for all legislators across the board. So it came out of the Senate, I think, yesterday, and it was debated in the House yesterday. But I think it's passed both chambers. Um, let me. Okay, congratulations. It, it, it's not as if you're getting paid. I mean, I know there's always controversy around what a legislator makes, but the reality is you're not making a really big sum of money doing work as a legislator, are you? 
No, it's a, approximately seventeen thousand a year. Um, so it, yeah. it's it's largely. I mean, the cut, while significant, is at the end of the day. I'm not sure how it's going to impact ultimately um, one billion in cuts to to education in the state. But we did it. Yeah, congratulations. Um, let's talk a little bit more about gam- gambling since we were talking about the budget. We There is still an effort underway to try to uh, – Ron Stevens wants to get on the floor a vote that would allow the people of Georgia to decide whether they want to legalize some form of gambling, sports betting, casinos, paramutual wagering – uh, whatever. Senator Jordan, that's going to happen in your side. Is it? What do you think the fate of that is going to be with the last uh, remaining days of the session approaching so rapidly? You know, I think it's going to be um, very difficult because when you're talking about a constitutional amendment, you have to have two-thirds of the chamber. Um, so while I believe most, if not all, Democrats in my chamber are behind it, we're only 21. Um, and so you know, to get to two-thirds of 56 is a, is a pretty big um, uh, to get over at this point. But I will say, in terms of gambling, there was a bill that came out of my committee that dealt with micro-sports betting, which all of the major uh, sports teams were behind, the Atlanta Braves, who I represent. They're part of my constituency, Atlanta United. And the whole point was to try to keep um, fans engaged, because now that we're not talking about them being there in the stadiums, but they could sit there and kind of engage, um, you know, with the process. And so um, I was hopeful that that was going to get over the line because there seemed to be a lot of support from it, at least public support, um, and probably could have brought in about $200 million worth of revenue. Um, But that seems to have gotten um, stymied as well. Senator Jordan, let me follow up on that sports betting uh, uh, bill because, um, again, I don't know if uh, people kind of conflate these issues. They conflate the – the casino constitutional amendment question with the sports betting. So uh, I'm going to say a couple things and just make sure I'm right. And so we can clarify for folks listening. First of all, it was unusual because the the leaders of all of the professional sports teams came together and they, um, I don't know if I would say that they lobbied because I know that that term is, you know, has a specific definition, but they certainly stood behind this thing publicly. And in fact, I was at a presentation they made, I think to the Atlanta Rotary Club about why they wanted to do it. And they were super clear that they they won't see any of the money. They see it right. as the money going to the state for the way the state sees it ought to be used and they kind of stayed away from, you know, having an opinion I think about how it ought to be used by the state. And they were simply focused right on this is where sports is going. And it really isn't about betting on whether your team wins or loses or by how many points, but it just is a model that's apparently used somewhat in Europe where fans during a game could bet on anything, like who's going to score the next goal or who's going to hit the next home run. And, and they're doing it because they want to make sure fans will stick with their sports, be interested in their sports, be able to enjoy their sports in any way that they want, as opposed to only either watching on TV or, or getting up and going uh, to an actual game. But wasn't the crucial issue whether the lottery commission couldn't simply take that on and kind of keep that out of all of the, let's just call it the chaos of the legislature? Wasn't that what you were trying to do? Or where is that right now? Well, it came out of committee, and it was supposed to go to the lottery commission. 
and the money was supposed to go um, for educational purposes, a lot like how, um, you know, the lottery is done right now. But you're right. I mean, micro sports betting, and really this is what the teams were pushing, which is the next generation of fans. How do we get the next generation of fans um, to kind of interact? And as we know with young people, they're always on their phones. It's all electronic. Um, and I think now, especially with the pandemic, when we're talking about, you know, kind of the new way we're looking at what sport, professional sports are going to look like. I mean, I think for our, um, you know, our professional franchises, this is incredibly important um, for them going forward. And you're right. They would get none of the revenue. This was not about a revenue generator for them. Um, but, you know, it's already happening in the state. I mean, if you look at fantasy football, right, how many people are parts of fantasy football leagues? Um, you know, bracketing, NCAA brackets, all this kind of stuff that people are already kind of doing this this micro or um, small sports betting online. And so, you know, this is this is two headed. One, it regulates it now to protect people um, in terms of these games. And then number two, it brings in revenue. Um, and number three, it, it really helps our professional sports franchises, um, you know, going forward in, in terms of, of making sure that, you know, they can they can stay um, as strong as possible. Go ahead. If there's, if there's, if there's, a, if there's ever a chance to do this in the way that Georgia has always dealt with gambling, um, if you attach it to the education needs that we have and as you guys discuss and the legislator, all the, the legislature, all the cuts that need to be made to education. I think if they make the argument to attach it to education, um, then this increases the chances greatly. The opposition is going to become because some people like gateway drugs. Some people feel like uh, online gambling is a gateway to in-place casinos, and I think there's more opposition to ca- casinos. So they have to do a good job of separating the two. Yeah, agree. Um, but they, but right, it absolutely is tied to educational funding. So. Let's do this. Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way and come back? There's a lot more I'd really love to discuss with our three panelists today, some of it legislative, some of about larger events that have been playing out in Georgia and in other states around the country. We'll do all that after we pause. This is Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's continue with our show today. Senator Jen Jordan, Leo Smith, Kevin Riley uh, with me. Um, Senator Jordan, let, let's talk about another measure that uh, passed yesterday, I think yesterday, day before, uh, the maternal mortality bill, which is um, something Sharon Cooper, of course, has just been passionate about uh, uh, shepherding through the legislature, did pass. Uh, it, it, at this point, is a statement of intent more than anything else because there's no funding for it. So just to be clear, it's a, the bill is an effort to address the fact that Georgia has one of the worst maternal mortality rates in the country. And of course, it's largely within the community of African-American women. So you pass the measure, but there's no money to fund it. What does all that mean? I think um, I think we do have the money. And I think um, there's been a major effort to make sure that that bill gets funded um, for the rest of this 
fiscal year and then going forward. Um, but I'll tell you that this is just the beginning. I mean, um, Representative Cooper's bill only extends it for three for three months. Um, there are other House bills, and I have a Senate bill that extends it for, for 12 that goes for the first year after giving birth, um, which the Kaiser Family Foundation has said that is the kind of gold standard um, in terms of trying to bring down the maternal mortality rate, because that way um, you've got the mother and the babies covered um, for that year after giving birth. Um, but look, three extra months, we'll take it this year, and hopefully we can push further next year. But, uh, but I do think that there is going to be money um, specifically to get us through the fiscal year um, to fund um, Cooper's bill. And just to be clear, I mean, that, that, that thing that's so important about um, mothers um, and how long that Medicaid lasts, is that a federal standard or a Georgia standard? So it's a Georgia standard. Um, and uh, maternal mortality is, uh, is gauged during that year after birth. And so, you know, if we're really trying to get at um, making sure that mothers are healthy and that they don't, you know, that they don't die from, from complications from childbirth or other comorbidities, this really is the way to get to it. But it absolutely, it's, uh, it's Medicaid and, um, and, and it's, it's a public policy choice um, made by the state of Georgia. Uh, uh, Leo Smith, uh, the, this is another example of how, it, we've seen it in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, the disproportionate impact of health issues like maternal mortality, like COVID-19, on uh, black Americans, on black Georgians, uh, Leo. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think uh, Senator Jordan mentioned it earlier about how COVID-19 is, you know, kind of reveal the inadequacies of public health. And I'm not so sure it's all based on the availability of, of money, in this case with the, the new bill, of course it is, and, but the availability of money in general is not always the question as much as we are very heavily localized in how we deal with a lot of issues, but at the same time, there's a paradigm shift needed for the public to realize that the government, and, and also depending on the ideology of government leadership, doesn't always feel that it is or isn't always the best organization to respond to create a community-based resiliency. And from, from you know, the, the things in New Orleans to the HIV epidemic that we've had, um, we constantly see that we're not really good at responding to emergencies. And then we do so, and we have this dependence on government, and it doesn't do a good job of responding to us. And that's why I and other private sector partners are looking for ways to create public-private partnerships to respond to some of the things that government seems inadequate in responding to. And the focus also has to be on managerial competency and public-private partnerships. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would take issue with respect to what Leo just said is, look, I, I think we've seen we're not good at responding to emergencies because we consistently, with respect to the governing ideology of the majority, has been to basically um, defund public health to fund kind of these um, safety nets for people. Um, so absolutely, when we have an emergency, when we have a pandemic, when for years you've cut it, you've cut it, you've cut it, and you've basically crippled it, yeah, we're not good at it anymore because we haven't made the appropriate investments. Now, do I think private um, partnerships, private partner, public 
private-public partnerships are important? Absolutely. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, people do rely on government. And if we keep cutting um, and we're not being responsive uh, to what the people of Georgia need, um, then that is incredibly problematic. Let me turn to another issue. Kevin Riley, um, we all celebrated. Well, I shouldn't say we all because I know that there are people out there who don't agree with this. Uh, but there was a histor- historical moment in the Georgia legislature the other day when the hate crimes bill passed the Senate as well as the House and is now on the governor's desk for signature. Georgia uh, erases, uh, it becomes one less state. There, there were four states that had no hate crimes uh, law. Now there are only going to be three because there's no reason to think Governor Kemp won't sign this measure. As editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, how important a story do you think this has been? Well, given what's going on in the country right now uh, and where we live and the history of where we live, I think it's hard to imagine a story too much more important. I know that some people would see what passed as, you know, more symbolic than uh, practical and maybe um, a little bit hard to really point to as a fundamental change in, you know, our nation's feelings and, and our nation's and our state's way of doing things. But I just think having Georgia hang out there is one of, you know, and having that tagline, if you will, of being just one of, you know, four states without a hate crimes bill um, was important to put to rest. If, if nothing else, that was important. I, also, I believe it's much more important than that. But if, if you just say that Georgia will never be talked about that way again, I believe that the legislature has accomplished something important. Leo? No, I, I would have to agree with Kevin. I think it was very important to just sort of get that off of our backs. But I think more importantly is what it actually does. I mean, it's every time an incident that can be proven to be hate, like in the Arbery case. I mean, that is irrefutable. You don't have to measure the thought. You don't have to question the intent. When he stands over them and he, you know, makes a racial epitaph after he's done that heinous act, it's clear. And so when that happens, that act of terrorism as a symbol to all people of color and and others in other kinds of cases, We now have something on the books that says collectively as Georgia legislators representing the people, we are against not only the crime, but we're also against terrorizing people because of their race. That's huge. And that means a lot. And I just I'm celebrating that still. I don't know when I'll stop celebrating it. Um, Jen, we should point out as we talk about this that while it's certainly true that this environment in which we're living, the police shootings of black uh, people, black men and a woman uh, in, in Kentucky, um, certainly is an impetus for our sudden awakening, if, I, if it is that, and I hope it is, uh, to uh, uh, bigotry and how it uh, uh, is toxic uh, in, in our society. So yes, police shootings are a part of this. But this bill also means that somebody who paints graffiti on a, a gay nightclub or assaults a, 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 a man or woman coming out of an LGBTQ nightclub, a synagogue that has a swastika painted on it. Um, these two are all crimes that will now be protected 
under this bill, right? Yeah, and, you know, just to kind of follow up with what Kevin said, I mean, you know, there have been some criticisms that this is just really um, symbolic. Um, but I'll tell you that um, symbols matter, and symbols are important. And um, I think that this is just a first step. I think we do have a lot of folks that have been awakened, I should say. And one of the one of the things that I think a lot of legislators are realizing is that we make the laws um, that are then enforced. And so if there is a problem in terms of the law and maybe how it's you know, feeding into some kind of uh, systemic um, racism or, um, or, or or some kind of institutional racism, then we need to really reevaluate the laws that we've passed, um, you know, and fix it. So I think that this is just a first step. I, I think that it's incredibly important um, for any number of people in this state. And whether you think it's symbolic or not, um, it's probably one of the most important things that have come out of the General Assembly um, in decades. You know, one of the things that's interesting, Senator Jordan, is that uh, this is also the very first time that the Georgia legislature has ever acted to protect or to even acknowledge the LGBT community in any legal manner. That in itself is really significant. It's incredibly significant, especially if you have been looking at the battles that we've had over the years with respect to um, the religious uh, freedom and liberty bills, right, Um, that a lot of people have uh, interpreted as targeting members of the LGBTQ community. So to go from kind of the RIFRA, um, you know, battles where we were trying to make sure that LGBTQ people weren't discriminated against, now to flip to a law that actually provides them extra protection, I mean, um, it it really is incredible, Um, you know, just across the board. Bill, what I would add to that, too, is coupled with the recent Supreme Court ruling, which is really based on a case out of Clayton County, uh, I think there have been some really significant victories for that community lately. And, uh, you know, I I think really it's hard to look at it and not believe that um, laws and the courts and our legislature are just catching up with society at large and how people feel. Um, you know, there was an, an interesting – your writer, uh, uh, Bill Torpy, had a fascinating column about the case of Gerald Bosick, the guy who brought the case that the Supreme Court heard, one of three people who brought the, the, the case that the Supreme Court heard. He was fired, he alleged, uh, be, from his job with the juvenile justice system, the courts in Clayton County, uh, when it was learned that he was gay – uh, and, of course, the court ruled in his favor. The court said that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act absolutely protect uh, the LGBT community, and, uh, and, and so that became a historic ruling in and of itself. But Torpy went down and talked to the judge who oversees that court, and the judge said, well, we knew all along that he was a, a, a gay, and it never really bothered us. But the judge also said, nevertheless, I'm really glad the Supreme Court acted the way it did. I thought that was a fascinating column, Kevin. Yeah, I think the you know, Bill's summary of it was that uh, sometimes uh, 
bad situations results in good laws or something like that. Uh, but it was, uh, as I suppose, almost any case that reaches the Supreme Court after such a long period, it just has sort of a tortured history and all of this uh, nuance to it that's very hard to understand. But in the end, the ruling was clear for people. Yeah. So what's fascinating um, to me as someone who's litigated um, constitutional cases is that Georgia was known for so long kind of as the state um, that created Bowers v. Hardwick, right? And so um, it really is kind of this full circle moment to, to have been, you know, the, the, the state for Bowers v. Hardwick, and now we're the state associated with Bostick. So I think that it is, uh, it, it's incredible in terms of how far we've come. Uh, you know what? That's such a great point, and I, w- I should have thought of that, too. Uh, remember, uh, Bowers B. Hardwick, was, uh, it was Mike Bowers. He's the attorney general of Georgia at the time. He, uh, uh, he went to the Supreme Court to argue that the Georgia sodomy laws were constitutional. Uh, and, uh, it, and he won that uh, uh, case, Senator Jordan. And so you're right. How ironic that it is a Georgia case which uh, gives protections to the LGBT community. Thank you for making that point. With that, we're out of time for today's show. Senator, I hope the last two days go well for you. Uh, Thank you. It was really generous of you to take time when you've got to get in there for the 39th day. So thanks thanks very much, Jen Jordan. I appreciate it having you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Leo Smith, thank you for joining us as well. Kevin Riley, um, I'm glad that you were here for the show today. Congratulations again. The Constitution worked hard to get these protections for senior uh, homes, care homes, in place because of the big, big series of stories you've done on that. And so I think you deserve This is an example of journalism at its best. Forget about fake news. When journalism works, it really works well. Congratulations, Kevin Riley. Thank you. That is uh, about all the time we have for today's show. Just to give you a little bit about what's coming up, Uh, Tomorrow, of course, because it is day 40, we're going to take a look at the final day of the session, what's still on the agenda, what we can say uh, with the session coming to a close about what the the session will be known for. And we'll have a panel of journalists to discuss that uh, tomorrow. And then on Monday, we're going to change pace. Monday, uh, we're going to look at this new extraordinary surge of interest in Tearing down, getting rid of, legally or by extra-legal means, uh, uh, monuments uh, to the Confederacy and to slave owners. And for that conversation, um, we're going to be joined by uh, Sheffield Hale, the uh, uh, CEO of the Atlanta History Center, Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, and, uh, and, and Michael Thurman. CEO of DeKalb County, who's had more of his, than his share of involvement with that Stone Mountain Memorial. So I, I hope you'll join us for that show as well. That's it for us for today. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back tomorrow with another Political Rewind. Uh, everybody out there, please take care and stay healthy. Wear your masks. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>